Welcome to Bitcoin Fixes This, where we explore the impact that Bitcoin will have in all aspects of society. Today's guest is Giacomo Zucco, physicist, programmer, and Bitcoiner. We talk about his interest in physics, what's happened to the progress in physics, and the connection with math. Giacomo also tells us about how metaphysics and the desire for determinism to be true affects the study of physics itself. Giacomo is a deep thinker and accomplished Bitcoiner. I've been privileged to know him through the Bitcoin space and know that he's had a lot of different thoughts on different issues. We talked about physics uh, because as noble as the science seems, there's an undercurrent of decline that's largely hidden through discussions of largely unprovable things like string theory. I hope you enjoy this episode. Giacomo, how's everything going, man? Fine, fine. Looking forward to travel again. Next uh, destination, Mexico, with uh, with you as well. <laughs> I think, right? Uh, yeah, yeah. I'm gonna be there. But yeah, like, how's everything been for the last year and a half over in Italy and Switzerland? Yeah, complex. Uh, at the beginning, very bad in Italy and very good in Switzerland. For the first wave of this madness, Switzerland was mostly spared, and then it basically shifted. In Switzerland now, we have a. Uh, there was like this referendum to cancel this uh, COVID restriction and the referendum was lost. And there was another emergency law about terrorism, which is basically Patriot Act on steroid. So now everybody can be spied upon in Switzerland as well. So it's it's quite bad, the political climate. That said, you know, nerds, Bitcoin nerds uh, had uh, a little bit less uh, to suffer than normal people because we were already kind of... Uh, computer-oriented, except for conferences and travels. The very uh-huh. sad thing was to miss a Bitcoin Miami conference. That oh, yeah. has been a bummer. Yeah, that must have been a bummer. And, you know, you do travel quite a bit for this stuff. And it sounds like you didn't get to, but at least you got to spend time with family, no? Yeah, that's true, actually. And uh, also the time with family was not really ruined by the situation because the the kid is three years old. So she was not really disrupted in her life or anything. Mm. uh, She she was too young to notice craziness. Mm, Okay. Well, so I brought you on the show because I know you have like a background in physics and everything. And, you know, I, I was a math major, so I like math. And physics was one of those things that I was good at, not really that passionate about, but I did have a quite a lot of interest in it. So I want you to tell our audience sort of what your academic background is and what you did and with physics and how you got into it and all that. Sure. So the first thing to know is that before Bitcoin, I was uh, having problems with being constant and I had a problem of discontinuity of interest. So all my life, I wanted to be like uh, a singer or the, or or like a politician or many other things. When I was choosing my high school, I wanted to be an archaeologist, but they have like a very distorted vision of what an archaeology does. My idea was basically Indiana Jones, so fighting Nazis in the jungle. So I studied like a classical studies with history and and anthropology and stuff like that. And then after high school, I was so bored with all the humanities that I wanted to do something hard science. At the beginning, I was interested in uh, genetic engineering. So I started to study that uh, like in the last year of high school. And uh, I've been told that the best way to pursue it was uh, was to study medicine and to become a medical doctor and then to do genetic studies. But that seemed a little bit long. So something very funny happened. I, I know you will probably not believe it, but we tossed a coin. There was a friend uh-huh. of mine and decided between uh, 
physics and medicine. And I was in the side of two because physics was also, also getting pretty interesting. So we just tossed the coin and he ended up being an anesthesiologist and I ended up being a Uh, having a degree in physics. So it was at, at the end between medicine and that, it was the toss of a coin, literally. <laughs> okay, so you decide on physics through the toss of a coin, which yeah. I'm sure like that must be like the craziest story. You decided your fate for like the next six years on the toss of a coin, but you went to university presumably and what, what happened? I did. Uh, uh, first of all, toss of a coin is a very like uh, uh, interesting physics situation. There is a lot of uh, uh, questions about probability connected to that. So it's not that uh, disconnected. So I registered and uh, I was not an excellent student, I would say. Uh, it was the Milan, the main Milan University. I was pretty good at... Uh, so one of my problems was the complete lack of... Uh, mathematical background. I had mm. in high school in Italy, classical studies, they say it's very good for the mind, for the general culture and for the general reasoning. But indeed, I did not know anything about calculus. So uh, like I couldn't do any integral or derivative, zero, completely zero, my first day mm. in university. And I couldn't do any linear algebra. So I didn't know what the matrix was. So as you can imagine, I was pretty good. Like I had like maximum votes on uh, history of physics and, and, and humanistic <laughs> bullshit like that. But on hard uh -huh. stuff, I really had to learn everything from scratch. But in a way, did uh, this basically helped me to, tr to be very, I mean, people who were already very good at math, they didn't need the mental shortcuts. They didn't need to get the, the physical picture necessarily very, very strong because they were good at math. So they could just calculate. I was very, very, very bad at math. So I had to basically become better at understanding, at, at trying to unify. And, and I became better at reductionism, I would say. I started to write equation across different fields in order to understand how to connect the stuff I was studying. And I became, I think, better at idea consistency probably than some of my colleagues while remaining very, very bad at math. But then Wolfram Alpha with Wolfram Integrator came into my life solving all the math problem automatically. <laughs> so my handicap was completely nullified by, by Mr. Stephen Wolfram. <laughs> so you continue studying. What branch of physics did you then go into? It was uh, theoretical. The, my dis final dissertation was theoretical physics, uh, and it was about uh, hypercomplex numbers, especially Hamilton's quaternions, but also mm -hmm. uh, Clifford algebra, small general, applied to special and general relativity. So the idea, just for the audience that may not be super, super into this stuff, uh, I guess many of the people listening know what complex numbers are. Basically, you extend the numbers in order to have a square root of negative one. And, uh, and many engineers and mathematicians discovered that when you have these kind of numbers, you can easily represent two-dimensional stuff. So you can represent rotation in 2D, you can represent the plan and stuff like that. So Mr. Hamilton, not the, not the same of the musical, not the founding father, not the, mm -hmm. the central bank <laughs> communist, but the other one, the Irish mathematician, he basically tried to extend these uh, numbers in order to do something which is even more 
than complex, which is hyper complex, in order to manage three dimensions, to have uh, 3D mm. calculations. He succeeded, but he ended up with a four dimensional stuff with a strange signature, like uh, with a time that was uh, squaring to negative and actually space was squaring to negative and time to positive. So it was weird. Nobody knew what to do with that. And so it was mostly, it was, uh, uh, let's say, mutilated into the vector calculus that we know today by Gibbs and Eviside, and then people started to do just vectors. But when relativity came around, people had to extend vectors to quadrivectors or tetravectors, four-dimensional vectors, in order to do relativity stuff, in order to do space-time Minkowski stuff. So what mm -hmm. I discovered, but not like my discovery, what I found out in old books was that uh, this kind of stuff was very good to manage uh, relativity with a better, let's say, it's equivalent on the point of view of physics, but it's way better from a pedagogical point of view and from a uh, aesthetical point of view, I would say. Every calculation is smoother. Every calculation is nicer, even simpler. What people are also using quaternions inside computer science, 3D simulations, so that they work. And it was very interesting for me to, to do this kind of scientific archaeology to take something uh, discovered, but then forgotten, and then coming back to be useful again. Mm. Well, so just to sort of update our audience, like quaternions are kind of like complex numbers, but instead of just I, you have I, J, and K. I squared is negative one, J squared is negative one, K squared is negative one. And you get weird things like I, J equals K and like J, K equals negative I or something like that. I can't quite remember which yeah, rotation. It's all uh, correct. Yeah, it's all correct. And I, J, K is, is yeah. negative one and they are anti-commutative especially. So I, J yeah. is uh, minus it, J, I. Right, right. And yeah, little known fact, I was in an acapella group my senior year of college when I was studying abroad in Budapest, and we called ourselves the Quaternions because there was four of us. <laughs> but, but that I didn't realize that Quaternions actually had a physics uh, sort of like component to it. I certainly knew that about complex numbers with like two dimensions and radial geometry and things like that. But can you describe for me a little bit more about how it sort of goes into relativity or how it relates? Because with relativity, you do have that fourth dimension in time, but it usually tends to be negative. So you have to do weird things with that. How do you fit sort of like quaternions into this model? So the simpler way to go to understand the connection, but it's not yet very useful, would be just to square a quaternion. If you square mm. a quaternion, you see that you have the square of the real component. Instead mm. of plus, you have minus the square of the second component, minus the square mm -hmm. of the third, and minus the square of the last one. So basically, mm. if you assign a real axis to time and the three imaginary uh, quaternion axis mm -hmm. to space, you have this kind of matrix, which is uh, T square minus X square minus Y square minus Z square. So this I is the, the other convention than the one usually, but it's the same. In relativity, the important thing is that you subtract, uh, when, you, when you want to understand the, the invariant uh, matrix, the invariant, uh, the invariant, let's say, space-time distance, you want uh, the difference between uh, time and the rest. It doesn't matter if you have negative in the in time or in space. So this is the main thing, but it didn't quite work immediately because if you if you square you get a, a real part of the of the square which is exactly the relativistic metric. But then you also mm. get a vectorial part 
which we cannot use in uh, special relativity, especially. So people started mm. to use uh, complexified quaternions. So quaternions are defined on top of complex numbers instead of reals with another i, which is uh, commuting with the other i, j, k. And now you get basically all relativity for free. You get uh, even very complex phenomena. So basically, you assign uh, the real component to time, and then you assign the i, let's call the other commuting negative square root of, of um, uh, square root of negative one, let's call it, I don't know, L. So you get mm-hmm. Ly as X, Lj as Y, and Lz as basically, uh, sorry, Lk as Z. So you, you go with real and with complexified vector part. In this way, you get like Thomas precession, you get... Uh, uh, Lorentz rotation in a very, very nice way without metrics. You can get away with all the metrics. And this is especially nice when you switch to general relativity because you, you can do something in a way which is nicer than, uh, you know, all the metrics uh, tensor and all this kind of ugly notation with tensor and Einstein notation with uh, sum over index and stuff like that. Yeah, which for me, like that was sort of like the limit of my like, tolerance for learning physics was when when you got to some of this notation that's just really ugly and difficult. It sounds like what you got here is when you use quaternions, which are actually a lot more elegant and easier to use, you get something that that is a lot easier to sort of express some of these physics principles in. Is that right? It is. It is. It's uh, it's simpler. You, you also have uh, less degrees of freedom. When you define a matrix for rotation, you have redundancy in the degrees of freedom you have to write into the matrix. So you have mm-hmm. to write like uh, one number and then negative that number in another in another square of the matrix. When you use mm-hmm. quaternions, you only use and complexified quaternions, you only use the degrees of freedom you need. And the, another very cool thing is not just that it's nicer to look at as a notation, but it's also less arbitrary because, uh, I mean, why four vectors and not five vectors? Why three-dimensional space and one of time and not two of time and three of space or four mm-hmm. of space? With quaternions, you have mathematics itself creating this uh, three plus one symmetry which is typical of space-time phenomenon. So it's it's very, of course, you can just uh, impose it, you can just define it ad hoc with the matrix as you do in uh, relativity, but with quaternion, it, it just emerges from fundamental mathematical choices. And that's not even the end, because if you try to go even more, so basically complexified quaternion units, they are the same as, uh, as uh, poly matrices in a Dirac equation. And if you take... Uh, two complexified quaternion spaces. So if you go to something which is known as Clifford algebra six, so with six square root of one, so you basically get the Dirac equation for free. It's uh, you, you don't have to discover the Dirac equation from physics uh, as uh, Paul Dirac had to do. You just see it emerge from pure math. Of course, there is. it would be cheating to say that there is no degree of arbitrariety like there is. Why are you choosing exactly that Clifford algebra? But it's very nice to see that if you choose this kind of consistent and elegant mathematical number system, much of modern physics can be derived 
from math directly instead of discovery uh, discovered empirically. Of course, not all of it. Like with this kind of for algebra, you can do the direct direct equation. You get some hint into the standard model of uh, standard model of particles, but you don't get stuff like mass of particles. So a, a lot of information is still completely missing, and still you have to put into the theory ad hoc. But uh, but it's nice. I remember that I was really. It was not a dissertation I made. Just I gave just to just to get a degree. It was something I was really super enthusiastic about. Mm. Yeah, and what it sounds like. Correct me if I'm wrong. It, it sounds like there was sort of like this. Um, mathematical construct you got quaternions and i guess you have to complexify it by using you know one other dimension that, of i or something like that but naturally from that mathematics you can derive a lot of the physics which which is very interesting to me like cuz in, in a sense the mathematics is very much metaphysical and physics of course is physical and you're able to derive a lot of the physical properties they they almost have to sort of emerge from this mathematical description which seems to be accurate am, am i getting it right or something something to that you're absolutely you're absolutely getting it right there is some kind of resistance to this notion because some physicists say okay but you're still choosing ad hoc stuff you just mm-hmm. know what the result must uh, be. So you're mm-hmm. basically, you are cheating. You are basically searching across uh, infinite mathematical structure. The ones that will recreate, uh, for example, the standard model of quantum physics or general relativity, which I think is a little bit unfair. There is some of that. There is some, some level of, I know the result. I have to get there. And so mm-hmm. I will make my choice accordingly. But really, like uh, complexified quaternions, which are also known as uh, the algebra of physical space. So if you want to Google around or duck, duck, go around algebra of physical space, you will get uh, complexified quaternions. And that was uh, discovered by Hamilton again in the 19th century before anything of this was useful or, or needed. So it's, it's unfair to say that it was, uh, it was just uh, created ad hoc in order to match physics. It, it was actually a line of research on pure numbers going on on itself and it happened to be very relevant for physics and the nice thing is that this was abandoned and all the results that modern physics uh, achieved during the beginning of the 20th century like the Dirac equation people that didn't know about complexified quaternion they had to reinvent stuff from scratch like uh, polymetrics or gamma matrices of Dirac and stuff like that. So this reality sort of emerges almost, and it correctly made a lot of predictions, and you, and you know these things sort of had to be rediscovered. In a sense, that's sort of like the essence of science, or you know, figuring out sort of like the rules by which everything works. And it, it does seem like there are rules of mathematics which seem to rule over you know, what's possible in physics and what sort of has to be. There's sort of like, you know, like you were describing degrees of freedom. There's no degree of freedom there. It it sort of has to be this way because of the way the math works. Is that close to what... It is it <laughs> what is. you were describing. There, it is. There is some arbitrarity, but it's very, very limited. If mm-hmm. Even if you're honest and you go with uh, logical, natural choices, you mm-hmm. end up with something which could have allowed Hamilton, if he didn't kill himself with alcohol to, mm-hmm. to basically, I mean, he was a great guy, but he was Irish and mm-hmm. he died younger. 
but uh, it could have probably discovered some of the physical feature of modern physics without any kind of, uh, of I don't know, photon spin experiment or double fenditor experiment, double slit experiment or something like that. So yeah, I think this is a very good description. Of course, you are saying that this is typical of science, but we have to add that this is old school science because new, new typical science is just ask to the government appointed scientists what is true and, and believe him without verifying. That's science now. This is a, <laughs> another kind of science, uh, very, very obsolete, I guess. Well, oh, uh, tell us how you really feel about modern science. <laughs> I, I, just, I just well, so that brings us sort of to sort of modern physics and especially like string theory and things like that. Which I honestly like physics doesn't seem to have progressed all that much, you know, since I guess quantum mechanics and things of that nature. I mean, like you get like maybe better numbers, right? You have the Hubble telescope, so you can figure out like how far the redshift is and maybe get more accurate readings on stuff. But I mean, like from my reading of physics the last 20 years, it just seems like academic masturbation. Am I wrong? I think you are not wrong. Uh, I think that the only thing that saves physics a bit is that everything else is even more academic masturbation. Like if oh. you go to to psychology or, or psychiatry, <laughs> that's literally nothing is reproducible anyhow. There is a, a complete reproducibility crisis, so nothing can be checked. It's all completely irrelevant. While in physics, there is some degree of, uh, of connection to reality, I would say that uh, fundamental physics is really at a dead end. Nothing uh, like the, the fundamental problems that the fathers of quantum physics considered indeed fundamental to solve, like uh, renormalization in quantum field theory, in, in quantum electrodynamics. Uh, this is a very stupid thing. It's like you make the calculation, you get infinities, but then you, you find other infinities and you subtract and magically you have the number that you want. It's just a <laughs> trick. And, and Feynman knew that it was a trick and everybody else knew it was just a trick. And they were like, okay, eventually we will discover the real fundamental reasons we can do this. And the, the applied science around the physics progressed in a good way because we had transistors, we had, uh, we had uh, new materials, the physics of materials comes from quantum physics. So this kind of provisional fundamental theories, they managed to give us a lot of applied uh, engineering. But then the fundamental field itself didn't progress at all and, and basically slid into this kind of, uh, it's part untestable, like string theory is literally disconnected from any kind of provision and testability. And now you, you can read articles of string theorists just saying that, you know, yeah, but this popper rule that you have to make prediction, it seems like too strict. Come on, let's, let's <laughs> discuss other stuff. They are trying to change the norm of uh, prediction and falsifiability because it's completely M theory is completely unfalsifiable. You have an infinite number of degrees of freedom that you just adjust in order to get all the results that you want. And even if you think about the measurements of the early quantum electrodynamics, there have been some scandals that, uh, People that fixed the numbers, basically. People mm. getting the number they were expecting because they were expecting it. And I think that the reason is not super sad as it would be otherwise. It's just that all the rest of the scientific enterprises is so much worse than physics that you give it a pass, basically. But it's mm. bad. Also, the, the fundamental thing is that you have two fundamental theories. 
One is, is quantum mechanics that is consistent when you, when you go non-relativistic and it becomes almost consistent with a few tricks when you go relativistic with uh, quantum field theories, but not really consistent because you have this renormalization. And then you have general relativity, which uh, also has like, uh, I mean, you have general relativity, the best uh, theory at all uh, predictions, then it will predict uh, a mass in the universe, but then the one you measure with other kind of indirect measures is more, and then you make up dark matter. And then <laughs> it predicts this kind of uh, acceleration constant in, in faraway galaxies, but then it's wrong. And so just, you know, that you have to, you, you just know you have to add dark energy and, uh, and a cosmological constant. So it's, uh, you know, it's perfect in prediction because you are going to fix the prediction as you go. And these two theories, which are not very consistent on themselves, they are completely incompatible when you try to match them together. You get infinities all around, everywhere. So right now, the, the cool thing would be to find something consistent. I think string theory is not only unfalsifiable, but it's also intellectually, philosophically kind. I, I don't know if somebody, some string theorist is listening to us and he will hate me, but I think it's <laughs> ugly. I mean, ontologically speaking, you have to basically assume not only space, you don't get emergent space-time in an elegant way. You have to assume space-time with 12 or 11 or whatever dimension. You have, a, from an ontological perspective, you have a very super heavy ontology with a lot of stuff you have to assume. And then you can have a theory that you can adjust with infinite degrees of freedom in order to match experiments. On the other hand, I think there are some interesting things for quantum gravity, like causal set theory and stuff like that. They are nice because they assume very light ontologies, like you only think about causal connections. And from that, you build space-time with three-dimension and stuff like that. So everything emerges from lowest, from, from very small assumption. The problem mm. is that from this theory, uh, the, another example would be outside academics would be the, the famous, infamous Wolfram model. So Wolfram is starting from, uh, again, the same Wolfram that saved, saved my ass in, in university <laughs> with, with the integrator is trying to make the, the, the modern physics emerge from this, uh, from this basically rewriting systems, basic rules for a rewriting system, creating physics from scratch. The problem mm. with this approach is that they are more elegant than string theories. They, they are more minimalistic in, uh, in ontological assumption. They are less arbitrary, but still they are very far from being uh, easy to connect with the phenomenology. So, I mean, it's very hard to go from Wolfram to a measurement. And mm. so, yeah, I, I would generally agree with the with assessment of a very bad state of the current fundamental physics research. Yeah, I mean, to me, like, you know, when I do read popular things on physics, it's almost always about dark energy, dark matter, string theory, all of which seem kind of like fudges, right? Like you make up dark matter and dark energy because the equations don't balance. And it's like, okay, I guess the equation's fine. It's, you know, it's a universe that's wrong, something like that. That's what it looks like to me as a mathematician or as somebody that's just sort of like looking at things rationally. It's like, okay, you have to add this cosmological constant to, you know, explain something. It's like you add in all these fudge factors, or I guess what you would call, you add degrees of freedom for yourself so you can, you know, explain the measurements that you're getting. It just doesn't seem like science anymore. You're just sort of making up crap in order to justify what you already believe. 
Yeah, if I try to to play the devil's advocate, I will say that when you are creating like new theories, you must be guided by empirical stuff you want to predict. Otherwise, it's not science. In this specific case, even I think the effort is is and not really consistent, and and there is not. I think there are, well, we can discuss that, but I think there are some problems with the fundamental metaphysical assumption of mm. modern theorists. If you read uh, the fathers of quantum theory, like if you read, uh, I don't know, Max Planck, and you read about his uh, ontological views and his uh, metaphysical views, he was basically a, a non-realist and non-materialist and non-physicalist. He was thinking about uh, like the human observer as something more important than particles. So it was taking this very strange metaphysical path. And I think that uh, fundamental research was basically leading there in a way. And uh, this was clashing with the typical modern metaphysics assumption. This was actually very consistent with the typical metaphysical assumption of a scientist of a physicist of the 16th or 17th or 1800th, uh, 18th century, but it was uh, at complete odds with modern materialistic uh, and, you know, anti, I don't want to use the word spiritual, but... Uh, well, I mean, they're denying sort of like a metaphysical reality. They only think, you know, there's this world and that's it. It's a, it's a very materialist yeah, view, right? Which is a very strong and heavy ma- uh, metaphysical assumption. So it's, this mm-hmm. is not being metaphysic, metaphysics free. This is having a very strong metaphysics assumption, which seemed to be very, very strong when Laplace was uh, promoting this view in the 19th century because with classical mechanics, this metaphysics of materialism, matter is all there is, was actually doing very well with classical mechanics. It was very consistent with this. But with quantum mechanics, I'm sorry, but it does. It, it just doesn't. You can mm. try to, you can still have a physicalist or materialist framework in quantum mechanics, but you need a lot of ad hoc stuff, like you need many words, and then with many words, you don't know exactly how to do Born rule, but then you can do like Born physical wave, pilot wave, moving the particle, but then you cannot make it relativistic. So to become, to be materialistic, or you, you need like spontaneous collapse of the wave function, but that's just not physics uh, that has been discovered (laughs) yet. So this is just an assumption you need only to protect your materialist metaphysics. So scientists today, they need to keep a 19th century metaphysics in spite of a science which is pushing the other way. And I think this is felt and this is one of the many, uh, together with the, the problems with academia itself, academic mechanism itself. I think this is maybe one of the elements, you know, I think that this is a long discussion, so stop me if I get boring. But I think that I think that quantum mechanics it has been called counterintuitive or mm. uh, or like confusing, but I think it is not. What it is is very intuitive if you start from the typical metaphysical assumption of somebody that that didn't that haven't studied science at all. Uh, like a child or a, or or a caveman and it becomes only counterintuitive to a typical newtonian physicist that uh, made a lot of effort in order to grow of uh, to to grow out of this kind of assumption so i make you three examples the first example is discrete versus continuous so mm. when you are a child uh, i guess that 
it doesn't make sense. You get very impressed by Zeno paradoxes, like uh, how can I, I throw an arrow if the arrow has to go halfway first, but before it has to go halfway or halfway and so on. So these paradoxes usually make you think, I mean, this cannot be at hand. Space must be not infinitely divisible. At least this was my concern when I was a kid. Then I, with a lot of effort, people convinced me that, uh, okay, but if you take infinite steps, but these infinite steps take infinitism time, so you multiply infinitism for infinite in this mm-hmm. integral and you get a finite, uh, finite uh, time to, for mm-hmm. the arrow to reach you. So you make an effort, a counterintuitive effort to move from uh, discrete and, and finite to infinite and uh, continuous. But then... When you get to quantum physics, you have to throw it away. And especially when you go to quantum gravity, you probably have to go back to assume that a Planck length, I mean, even if you don't go to quantum gravity, Planck length uh, is something you cannot go under under any kind of modern physics assumption. So you have to Mm -hmm. admit that you have to go discrete again. And then the second will be probability versus determinism. So when you are a naive uh, external observer of, uh, of the world, you know that everything is probabilistic. You know that you cannot really predict the weather tomorrow, that everything is out of your control. You can maybe predict like solar eclipses, which is the only thing, basically the reason ancient population were looking at stars was that it was the only predictable thing. Everything else was extremely chaotic and unpredictable. Then with Newtonian physics, you thought you have to convince yourself that there is no chance, no real randomicity. Everything is deterministic, like a perfect machine. And, uh, and it's only, it only appears to be deterministic at macroscopic, in the macroscopic world because of ignorance. But then you go to quantum physics and you have to admit that the universe is intrinsically indeterministic. And then the last, which is the more powerful is you, at the beginning, when you are a child, you cover your face, your eyes, and you think that the world disappears when you cover your eyes. Because you know that you as an observer are, you give yourself a privileged point of view. Then Mm. when you learn physics, you have to painfully learn to throw yourself out of the equation at the observer to ignore human observers as something interesting. You have to cancel free will, consciousness as just uh, illusions and uh, epiphenomenons, and you have to cancel all this stuff. And then you get to quantum mechanics and you get to the interpretation of Copenhagen and especially Wigner and von Neumann and Stepp. And then you get to hypothesis of consciousness uh, for wave collapse like Penrose or Eccles, John Eccles. And then you get to, I don't know, a lot of interpretation of quantum physics in which, or quantum Bayesianism, cubism, where the human observer is the fundamental thing and the matter and energy are emergent things themselves. So human experience as the the foundation and uh, matter as the emergent illusion and not the other way around. So Mm. this is pretty much, I know this this blows a typical physicist's mind, but I I don't agree it's counterintuitive. This is just getting back to a more, I would say, even natural framework that was considered naive under the delusion of uh, mechanistic physics. Yeah, and that's something that strikes me about your description is that sort of like the Newtonian mechanics and, you know, pre-relativity, pre-quantum, all that stuff, it was very much about sort of controlling the world. And that's a control that a lot of physicists sort of have a lot of trouble sort of giving up because when you 
recognize like what what's actually going on in quantum mechanics where it's a probabilistic model where you literally have no idea whether or not it'll you know go this way that way or it'll have this spin or that spin or something like that that's deeply unsettling when you grow up with the assumption that everything in the world is knowable and that it's deterministic. In a, in a sense, you get thrust back into sort of like a non-deterministic world, which is, I think, as you said, you know, very much a part of the human experience. And that's, that's what we experience every day. It, it's just that physics gives this sort of like false promise of, de- or at least Newtonian physics gives this false promise of you know, being able to control those uncertainties in a way that really it shouldn't. Yeah, yeah. Laplace exactly said this. He said, if you give me all the positions and the momentums of all the particles, I can predict all the future and explain all the past. I don't need free will. I don't need God. I don't need, I don't need anything uh, as a new hypothesis. I just need positions and mm-hmm. momentas. And mm-hmm. this is all I need to predict completely all the future and all the past. Then the first thing that physicists had to give up was knowledge because you had like a chaos science. You have basically nonlinear system. So some things you cannot really know because small changes make a big difference. So it's impossible to practically know. But then with quantum physics, they had to give up the even theoretical. It's not even a point of knowing. It doesn't even exist. When you have, you, you can have this experiment where you basically, you send a photon and the photon can either go right or left. And then it gets gathered again and then it goes either up or down. And if you look at one of the right or left choices, then the photon will only go up and it cannot go down anymore just because you're looking even if the photon is not passing through the way you are looking. So the fact that you are observing, uh, this seems, at the beginning they tried, uh, many physicists, they struggled, they tried to, Einstein himself, he was like super deterministic, even in a way, even more than God does not play dice, is his quote. Yeah, exactly. And also uh, he was using the term God, but he was a Spinozian, so his God was a materialist God and completely deterministic, and he believed in a block universe, like everything is already written, there is no choice, Mm -hmm. there is no real change, everything already exists in four dimensions. So Mm -hmm. he he had troubles with this and tried to falsify it, he tried to to come up with uh, this kind of thought experiments in order to, to find an inconsistency. And he ended up wrong in, in all these cases. Basically, quantum physics was right and Einstein was wrong. And it, it went even worse because then you had like Bell inequalities and Alan Aspect experiments about, uh, for example, delayed choice. And now you have the delayed choice quantum eraser where basically you measure something and measuring, you will basically have the interference pattern disappear. But then you delete the information you have about that and now that you deleted it before reading it, so you measure, you store the information, you delete the information, and now you have interference again because you deleted the information be- before watching it. So you really have, I mean, it's not that you are forced to come up with some kind of, let's say, consciousness-based ontology, but if you don't, you need a lot of effort about untestable stuff like parallel universe or pilot waves, you need a lot of uh, assumptions. You, you, need, of, you need additional degrees of freedom so you can fudge in and get whatever it is that you want, essentially. Yet yeah. again. 
yet again. Yeah. It's stuff that you cannot measure and you cannot predict. It's just stuff that you need only to save your materialistic uh, metaphysical background. Mm. And so that brings us back, I guess, to a more philosophical sort of argument there, which is that there does seem to be an agenda there, right? Like there is sort of like a materialist metaphysic that a lot of physicists want to be true. And in a way, they add these other things as a way to make that metaphysic true. It's almost like they they want to be able to predict everything or you know, like had this sort of like 19th century view that you outlined earlier, like if I know the position and, you know, velocity of every particle, I, I can know uh, all of the past and all of the future, like sort of this very, like the world is already pre, uh, determined and, you know, we are going to do what we're going to do. That that seems to be an agenda here almost uh, within physics that hasn't died despite all of the interesting observations that have been made, all the uh, all, all the stuff from quantum mechanics and all that, that seems to contradict it. Yeah, I'm not sure I would call it an agenda. I think it's an intellectual fashion. I think mm. it's an intellectual trend. It can be as powerful as an agenda because peer pressure is strong, even if mm. it's just for a Fed, even if it's not an agenda. What I mean is that it's true that that materialistic frameworks, materialistic uh, philosophies, they can actually give power to some people because uh, if the world is predictable then if i am in charge of prediction i i can just rule you i just can i can govern you because i'm i'm the predictor i'm the scientist that's true but the same goes with any other kind of metaphysical assumption if we are in a theocracy and i i mean and i'm the ayatollah i can still govern you around without any kind of uh, materialistic assumption. So the point is not really that this interpretation is the only one that gives some kind of power. The point is that I think that the materialistic point of view, just after Descartes, so already in the in the 17th century, it started to grow in, and fight the common sense. So the common sense was anti-materialistic. Everybody mm. know that, that they have a consciousness. Everybody knows that uh, they have free will. Actually, everything we know, including physical experiments, we know those just because we have an internal perception of stuff. Otherwise, we, we could not even read yeah, I, physics books. itself and physics yeah. rule, laws of nature. They're all metaphysical. It, it seems ridiculous to me that like strict materialism is even a thing, that it's yeah. not intellectually consistent at all. And I think that to everybody, it seems ridiculous. Almost everybody. When the first, uh, I would say, heroic, even if misguided people started to promote this view, like uh, Hobbes and a few others. But then these heretics, they started to basically, within the frame of Newtonian physics, these assumptions seems, seemed lighter than the other way around because mm. the success of Newtonian physics was very, very huge and completely impossible to stop, it, they seemed. So basically, you had this kind of shift. And with the shift of philosophy, you have a shift of power because, of course, now you can overthrow the old school with the new school. And then what happened is that this kind of uh, uh, mechanicistic point of view uh, started to spread outside physics into medicine and psychology and uh, even history, if you think about uh, uh, mm. Marxist, uh, like Frankfurt uh, historicism, where all the history is, is just uh, 
possible to calculate with uh, this kind of social forces. You just <laughs> right. go down and calculate and everything is deterministic, like historically inevitable, like, uh-huh. uh, like in Marxism. So yeah. this basically started to, to flow out of science into, uh, out of physics into social science. Then at the heart, at the heart of uh, physics, where all this stuff started and where this stuff was coming from and invading every other field, there was the implosion of this assumption with quantum physics. And the first people accepting and creating, so the first people hinting at quantum physics, like Einstein, they never accepted this. But mm-hmm. the first people really developing quantum physics, like Planck and Heisenberg, and they literally adopted this kind of non-materialistic assumption. Then mm-hmm. you have uh, this kind of incomplete revolution, because uh, I think that probably part of responsibility is also that this kind of quantum mind stuff also started to get used by Eastern spirituality types with very ambiguous hand-waving theories about, you know, quantum. If you search on internet quantum something, you will have 99% bullshit, just like if you search for blockchain. <laughs> you will have quantum healing and quantum something. Quantum, it's, it's basically stuff to... Quantum is a new buzzword to sell you some kind of pill or some kind of investment scheme. So mm-hmm. it's, it's mostly scams. And I think that one of the reactions was to not take the, the fundamental challenges of quantum physics seriously. So most people are new in university, even professor they were like, uh, I mean, how does the wave function collapses? And they were like, uh, oh, this is just decoherence. But decoherence is not that. Decoherence doesn't solve anything. They were actually, what they were thinking was decoherence plus many word uh, theory, which uh, itself is completely known testable and uh, way, uh, way too many way too many degrees of freedom on the many world yeah, assumption. Yeah. Like, I, 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 I can it's, make it <laughs> Yeah. Of course, I mean, you can make it more consistent, but, but uh-huh. the, the point is that you, so it's like, so that, it's yeah. like issuing tokens on an altcoin. You can make any business model work <laughs> yeah. if you're issuing your own money. You can make any yeah. physics work if you're making a many worlds assumption. Uh, yeah. And when I gave them mostly non-physics paper, but philosophy of physics paper, actually basically pointing down to the process of thought, explaining clearly that the coherence doesn't solve the tension between observer and uh, unitary evolution in physics, they were surprised. Like they were, oh, but I've been told that there is just the coherence and it's solved. But it, it has not been solved. It is still the same. It is exactly the same kind of mystery that was for uh, Heisenberg or von Neumann or Wigner. Again, the only difference, and even more for uh, Bell, the only difference that people just... Uh, stopped thinking about that and tried to hide this uh, embarrassment for materialism under the rug. And they use a Stroman argument. If you point to like uh, inter- Copenhagen interpretation or, or cubism, they will just say, oh, come on, don't go all quantum healing uh, Buddhist priest uh, on me. Uh, they will just uh, strawman you into some kind of spiritualistic uh, hand-waving uh, guru type in order to avoid the hard questions. Mm. Oh, so what are the hard questions? What is sort of like physics not courageous enough to actually face? Because it feels like it's been stuck for so long. And there, at least like the fundamental aspect, I'm sure there's like a lot of progress in material science, uh, physics and, you know, fluid mechanics and things like that, which uh, has been used by engineers for good. But 
like the fundamental stuff, there seems to be just sort of like this metaphysical mental block that that physicists can't seem to get over. So what are the big questions that they're not facing that they really should be answering but aren't? Basically, I think that in a very simple way to put it, missing some nuances, of course, but we can get into that later, would be that you have two choices with modern physics. Either you follow the natural, the most obvious Occam razor interpretation, and then you have to gradually accept that the fundamental pieces of reality are stuff like information, experience, choice, and not really electrons or stuff or energy. And you go in that direction and basically you go in this kind of it from bit framework, but it from bit seems, seems actually harmless because it seems just computer science. It seems like computer science is taking over physics. That's true, but it's even worse because it's computer science plus stuff like uh, consciousness, personal human consciousness taking <laughs> over the world. And this is more embarrassing if you go in that direction. The other way to go is to, to keep, to save, to protect your uh, physicalist, uh, materialist uh, view and to overcomplicate things a lot in order to have this kind of 11 dimensions with strings and pilot waves and multiple words and apparently to choose. And uh, everybody recently in academia are moving to choose the latter and not the former. And mm. I think this is even from the path, uh, this is not just a metaphysical block. This becomes a practical block. Because mm. when you your metaphysics is uh, super complicated just to save your metaphysical assumption, when you have to create all these ad hoc hypotheses just to avoid facing the interpretation you don't like, what happens is that you lose, uh, is that intuition becomes harder because you have to assume a more complicated model just to save your metaphysics. And more of that, you don't have heuristic help from the, the from interpretation. So let me try to clarify this. If you interpret quantum mechanics with interpretation of Copenhagen and consciousness causes collapse and step or Wigner, everything is fine. You will have a perfect prediction. If you interpreted it with many words plus Born rule, which you have to stack in in a, a little bit hard hoc way, you can still do perfect prediction on the things you can see. Of course, most of the things you cannot even test, but mm -hmm. at least the things that you're going to see, you can predict them. So it's equivalent from the point of view of experiments, but it's completely different from the point of view of heuristics. So what are you going to do to discover new stuff? For example, to go into quantum gravity, when you want to discover new stuff, when you want to expand your knowledge and not just to reproduce the current knowledge, you need the guide of a consistent view of a consistent vision. Of a theory, and, yeah. <laughs> of a theory, yeah. And um, my guess is that overcomplicated theories that have the only purpose of saving materialism are not the best guide to discover new stuff. And that seems to have held back physics to, for a while now. I mean, like the problems that I like, so I've been, I've been studying cosmology lately and like just, you know, reading about like the inflation problem, you know, like why it exists, why right. physicists have to do it. And it's like, it just seems so incredibly arbitrary, right? Like to add inflation to Big Bang in order to yeah. make sure that the temperatures are more or less even wherever we look. That's an observation that we have to fit into this theory. And the only way to do that is, 
you know, like some very small fraction of a second after the universe was born, it somehow like, you know, grew way faster than the speed of light, like really, really quickly to a point where, you know, like, you know, it had enough time to mix, but it didn't have, you know, it, you know, like it, it just sort of had to expand. And it, it, things like that are just all over physics, right? Like, you know, we we're talking about dark energy, dark matter. Well, uh, yeah, you know, exactly. Yeah. One thing I appreciate about inflation is that they toss in these other particles, the inflaton, but they don't call it dark inflaton, which surprised <laughs> me because every, every, time, every time they don't know how to fix the theory, which is making wrong prediction, they make it dark something. So, okay. <laughs> But, Dark you know, inflation. It seems kind of dishonest because you're adding in all these fudge factors. It reminds me of the Fed, right? Like they're, you know, the yeah, CPI yeah. number always comes in at two percent because they manipulate it that way. Although, you know, obviously this month they had to say it was like five point four or whatever. Yeah, but, <laughs> but there's sort of like it just doesn't seem honest anymore. And I think you've sort of identified where it comes from. It's it's sort of like this deterministic metaphysic that they want to have and they add other stuff so they could keep that particular worldview instead of sort of letting the science show them what it's supposed to be. Instead, they craft sort of like these, you know, elaborate theories. It, it reminds me of epicycles, right? Like where you yeah, can draw perfect, perfect example. Yeah. Perfect example. The, the, the geocentric model, geocentric model can work as long as you add a lot of super complex mo motion. So the mm -hmm. epicycle theory was basically covering all the empiric factor back then. It was not lacking, but it was absolutely overcomplicated just to preserve a point of view that was against the simplest interpretation. So you're absolutely right. Well, I think that we are just, we are giving a little bit of uh, we're assuming noble intentions because even if it's a wrong metaphysics and if it's dishonest metaphysic protection fed, still we're talking about philosophy. There mm. may be another more gross and down-to-earth explanation together with this one about determinism and consciousness and free will, which may be the fact that with some physical theories, you can ask for government funds in order to build more accelerators and synchrotrons and cyclotrons. Without these theories, if you go into more consistent stuff, you may not have you may not have excuses to spend all that money building stuff. So it may also have some kind of more economical component to it. So you're saying that because there's free money available, essentially, yeah. through grants and so on, <laughs> that, that research tends to go in a more expensive direction, which yeah. instead of the more truthful one. Our friend, the Seyfedian, would say uh, fiat physics. <laughs> yeah, wow. Well, so, so walk with me through sort of how physics changes as we go on more of a sound money Bitcoin standard. Because... Clearly, something is broken about the current academic system. And I think, you know, anybody that's in the university system or anything like that knows, you know, like it's not just physics, it's like everything. It's the incentives are off. And, you know, it's publisher parish, it's doing writing papers that don't say anything, that aren't reproducible, that, you know, that are sensationalistic in some ways. I, like, things are very off, even in a hard science like physics. So, how does Bitcoin change things going forward? I think at least uh, three effects. One effect will be just to change the, to remove 
part of the distortion of free money newly printed in order to influence stuff. So we have this kind of uh, elite that can uh, extract uh, borderline infinite money with the Cantillon tax, and they can use it to buy everything, which includes buying intellectuals, buying philosophers, buying scientists. Of course, I think that the priority, the, the typical shopping list of these people, they don't include physicists at the top of the list. They mostly include uh, like medical doctors, as we can see right now, or economists, especially to justify what they do, or social scientists. So these is people in power. They want to buy scientists that tells them that they need to stay more in power. But I think we learned that even fundamental physics can be politicized at a very high degree. For example, there was like in China during the Cultural Revolution of Mao, there have been a physics professor killed because Western quantum mechanics was an anti, uh, literally it was an anti-Marxist philosophy. So this stuff has been actually, there has been other people thrown in jail in Russia and the Soviet Union because they were, because they were political interpretation of fundamental physics. So removing this kind of distortions may help removing this kind of, uh, removing economic distortion may remove a part of intellectual distortion. Another kind of effort could be more indirect, and it will be just the collapse of the authority principle that is the base of uh, the modern average Joe epistemology. So average Joe today thinks that there is the expert, the expert is the one appointed by the government, and he knows what to say, and he's always right even when he contradicts himself in two minutes, is mm. still right. And you just have to trust and never to verify. I think that I brought up this discussion a few days ago in another conversation about uh, nutrition. And uh, it, there was a classical question, you know, why are you Bitcoiners so much like talking about nutrition all the time? This doesn't have anything to do with, uh, with money. Well, not much directly, maybe. There may be some direct connection, but indirectly, the point is that when you recognize that the top experts in monetary theory and economics are literally either morons or dishonest criminals or both, and those are the all the, the highest authorities in this field in the world, then you may have a epistemological clue that maybe you need to verify not just your software, not just your keys, not just your monetary base, but even other stuff. So you, uh, this kind of attitude, Bitcoin forces you to verify more and trust a little bit less, or at least trust within reason and with caution and with that adversarial mindset. It's not that you cannot use authorities anymore because you cannot, there is division of labor even in knowledge and you cannot know everything just rederiving it by yourself. That's, that's just practically impossible. You have to admit skills, experience and specialization. You have to listen to experts. But the point is that you have to ask yourself first, is what experts, I mean, do, can I at least check logical consistency of what the experts are saying? Because if what they're saying is logically inconsistent, at least at that layer, I can already debunk it myself. Second, does this expert contradict any other expert? And is this like a political expert monopoly? Or this is like a real free market of ideas? And then you have your second clue. And third, basically you have like, uh, is there a strong 
reason, a stronger uh, incentive uh, for this guy to tell me this. I mean, if somebody, let me give you an example. You have an old couple in a house and then you have these guys uh, knocking at the door and they have like a knife and like very, very angry face. And they say, we have to enter to check your electrical system. And then the old couple will answer, I don't trust you. I don't let you in. And then they may say, are you electrician, electricians? You are not. You are not expert in this. You cannot, you cannot know if my intentions are good because you're not experts in the field of electrical systems. So you have to let us in. The point is that if there is a strong reason to think that somebody wants to control us or hurt us or take our stuff, then it's not a matter of division of uh, competence anymore. It's not a matter of expertise. It's a matter of uh, trust and adversarial thinking. So this is the second more indirect way. And the third one may be that, as anything else, some money can help. Some money can lower time preference and help uh, investing in uh, non-unstable, non-provisional, but sound and intergenerational endeavors. And fundamental physics is such an endeavor. You need to, there are two ways to do fundamental physics, either provisional hack just to keep it together or effort to search for something stable and fundamental in order to, to do something in the future to build upon that. And I think that some money in general can incentivize this kind of behavior across different fields. Mm. Well, this hour has just absolutely flown by, and I feel like we could probably go for another two hours like discussing various <laughs> things in physics, but I do want to respect your time and, and so on. So where can people find you and you know, how, can, how can they go find your dissertation? <laughs> huh. Yeah, dissertation uh, well, is not even online, I think. I, I may publish uh -huh. it. So people can find me on Twitter and uh, Giacomo Zucco. G-I-A-C-O-M-O-Z-U-C-C-O. And if I get banned from Twitter, I have a Telegram channel with the same name. And also I have a website. Even if in the website, I have to fix it because the, like the videos, they are not working. I have to fix a little bit the website. But anyway, GiacomoZucco.com, you can go on the website. You can check some stuff. There is nothing about physics there. Also because after, so I told you at the beginning how it started, but how it ended was that while after my degree, uh, a multinational hired me to do uh, design of payment systems in Accenture. So I did that for four years and then I discovered Bitcoin. And then I focused only on Bitcoin for since 2013 until now. So I don't do physics anymore at the professional level. So I don't really publish anything at all. I don't, I just discuss with friends when, when I want to discuss, but uh, there is nothing like about my dissertation on my website or anything. I may... I still have the digital version of it, I think. So maybe I can just publish it somewhere. Okay, awesome. Well, thanks for joining me. That was amazing. Yeah, thanks. <laughs> my pleasure, my pleasure. And also a different topic sometimes. It's, uh, it's fun. <laughs> <laughs>
Well, that wraps it up for this episode of Bitcoin Fixes This. Giacomo Zucco can be found at Giacomo Zucco on Twitter. Until next time, fiat, the lenda est.